And I think that we, are, we face that danger a lot. I'm also looking at this because of just this tremendous need and, and, and burden, really, that we want people to know Jesus Christ. Uh, as some of you are fully aware, I've engaged in a lot of speaking and apologetics in this past year, and people think that, well, you like that, you like arguing, or it's about trying to persuade people, it's about winning arguments, and it's not, because it's very, very frustrating when you can win an argument, but people aren't any closer to Jesus Christ, and that is really what it is all about. So, one of the key things is that we ourselves are drawn closer to Christ in order that we are able to draw others. And this evening, the other reason I want to look at Isaiah is um, this evening we have communion, and I want to continue to look at uh, Revelation 21. And if you can, please be here, because I always thought Revelation 21 was just entirely about heaven. Um, And having looked at it again, I realized that it's not. And actually, Revelation 21 describes the church. Now, that may seem a bit fantastical to you. But come along this evening and you'll see uh, what we mean. And we sit at the Lord's table to remember his death. And I think part of this is is almost like a two-part sermon because part of it is um, reflecting upon what Christ has done. Anyway, this passage begins with the contrast between human opinion, man's opinion, and what is revealed that comes from God. Who has believed our message? How are people going to believe in Jesus? Turn with me to Romans chapter 10, and you'll see a very good uh, comment on this. Romans 10, and at verse 16. Not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. In verse 21, we read this same chapter, Romans 10, verse 21. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Who would believe in Jesus Christ? Nobody, because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in lots of ways. There's this kind of notion that people have is if we just tell people about Jesus, then he's what they're looking for and they will come to believe in him and so on. But human beings don't come to believe in Jesus Christ, not by uh, us just simply going and telling, not by cleverness of argument and so on. Why would anyone believe in Jesus Christ? And, and, And then it gets a little bit more personal because sometimes as a Christian, you can go through doubts, and I've certainly gone through this where you think, why should I believe at all? How, why should we believe this? Why should we believe this message? Why should we believe this report? What? And, and sometimes you get people who have been going along in the church, quite the thing, and then all of a sudden, they just suddenly announce, I no longer believe. Um, we have the privilege of being connected with many, many different churches, people who've come here, and uh, um, Tim will know this in terms of Sweden, the a prayer letter just recently from there, someone who wanted to be a teacher in that church, someone who wanted to be a minister in that church, is now announcing that he just doesn't believe anymore. And sometimes that's almost the great unspeakable, where people go through this kind of, wait a minute, do I really believe this? And why should I believe it? 
And it's almost such a horrific thing for you that you think you can't verbalize this, you can't state this. Why would we believe in this Lord? Why would we believe this message? Well, I think the answer is straightforward, and it's given here in Isaiah 53 and also in Romans 10. And the answer is you wouldn't believe it. No one would believe it. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not going to believe this unless it is revealed to you. Unless the message comes to you, there can be no belief without divine revelation. Human observation alone is not enough. So when someone says, I will believe what I can see, I will believe what I can understand, what that means is you're saying, I, I, I'm not going to believe the Bible. I'm not going to believe Jesus. I'm not going to trust in the Jesus of the Bible. Because he is beyond your comprehension, and the message of the cross is foolishness to you, and it will be foolishness. Human observation is needed, but it is not enough. You do need revelation. And in a strange kind of way, when someone says, I'm not going to believe in God unless I see him, they're actually right, except they're wrong in thinking it has to be a visual image. But unless God reveals, you won't get it, you won't grasp it. In Isaiah 53, it's the belief in the message. It's the belief in the report. It is the facts. It's like um, in the story of Joseph in Genesis 45, 26, that they come back, Joseph's brothers come back to Jacob and they say, they tell him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. It was too good to be true. In Deuteronomy 9, verse 23, when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, he said, go up and take possession of the land I've given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You did not obey him. You did not accept what he was saying. You turned away from him. In the book of Deuteronomy and in chapter 7, in fact, turn to that, Deuteronomy 7 and verse 18 Do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the miraculous signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. And back in Isaiah uh, 51, Isaiah 51 and verse 9. Awake, awake, clothe yourself with strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Uh, Again, in 52 and verse 6. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. And again, in 52 and verse 8. Listen, you watchmen, lift up your voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Now, that whole thing in there is, is people seeing and grasping the salvation of God. 52.10, the Lord will lay bare His holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. We do need to think things through. We do need to consider what God has said in the past. We do need to work through the objections and the questions that people will have. But the greatest need we have, we need all that. that. 
But the greatest need we have is we need the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to believe that revelation. It's the revelation that comes to us through the Scriptures. But we need that revelation to to come to us in such a way that our eyes are opened, our hearts are warmed. You know the story of um, John Wesley, how he was desperately seeking God, and he walked into uh, a chapel in London, a church in London, and someone was reading from Martin Luther's preface to Romans. And he said, as he read, my heart was strangely warmed. And he talked about how he felt and how he saw Christ. Well, we really need that. We, we need that ourselves. We need to see Jesus Christ. And those of us who are Christians, I need this. We, we, it's not enough to remember seeing him in the past, though that's important to thank God for what he's done for us in the past. We need more and more. Open, we, we pray, open my eyes, Lord, that I may see Jesus. And that's what we, we want for people who are not yet Christians. If you're, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, then the only thing I could pray for you is that God would, would work in your life so that as Jesus is being taught from the Bible, suddenly, or even gradually, it, it clicks, it makes sense. It, you see him, you understand who he is. There's a, a, a book, this sounds so pretentious, I know, but there's a, there's a book I've been reading. I just absolutely love Paradise Lost, the poems of John Milton. I just, it's the kind of thing that only works if you read out loud. And I've got it on my, this is even more pretentious, I've got it on my iPhone. So I walk down the street reading it, but I read it out loud. So um, obviously it may sound a bit strange to punters passing you by. But uh, there's just some great things in the, in the rhythms and in the rhymes. And, but in, in Milton's great vision of Christ. Now the important thing about realizing in Milton's poem is Milton went blind. And when he wrote this poem, he was blind. And he wrote about what it was to be blind. And then he wrote about his vision of Christ. And this is part of what he says in book three. Beyond compare, the Son of God was seen most glorious. In him all his Father shone, substantially expressed. And in his face divine compassion visibly appeared. Love without end and without measure grace, which uttering thus he to his Father spake. I just love that, that the Son of God was seen most glorious. In him all his Father shone. Love without end and without measure, grace. Well, there are many, many people for whom Jesus is nothing but a baby in a manger. Uh, I, I was listening to somebody talking about this, and they said, they said to their kids, Ah, but Jesus grew up. Yes, he was a little baby, but he grew up. And what happened to him, and so on. Now, it, this... You may have difficulty accepting this, but human beings are by nature spiritually blind. We do not see Christ. Supposing Christ was standing right in front of us in all his glory, we do not see Christ. And those of us who are Christians, so often we, well, we have the shades on. We don't see Christ. We see our greatest need as being, oh, I'm so lonely. Or our greatest need as being, oh, I'm so poor. 
or our greatest need is, oh, I'm so sick, or our greatest need is, oh, I just, I need, I need, I need this, I need this. All of those needs are like the gifts that I was trying to talk to the children about. They're things that are important, but they're not our greatest need. And our greatest need is to see Jesus Christ. And and if nothing else, I, I pray that you would grasp and you would understand that and you would long for that. And it's not as, as simple as some people might think. They might say, ah, well, just believe and that's it. And then what happens then is you get Christians who cop out and they say, well, I believe in Jesus. Now let me get on with other stuff. But I, I have to say to you that uh, I believe in Jesus, but often I do not see him. And therefore, it's very, very easy for the devil to come in and to distract me away from the one whom I do not see. You see, that's how it works in terms of sin, because uh, you get a guy who's sitting down at a a computer, and he switches on internet porn, he's a Christian. How how does he believe in Jesus? Does he not think that if if his wife was with him, or his family were with him, and they were watching, he, he wouldn't do that. But he doesn't see Jesus, he doesn't believe that Jesus is really with him. Or you get somebody in in church and they just get really mad and lose their temper. How are they seeing Jesus? Because if Jesus was there, they wouldn't lose their temper. They're not going to lose their temper with somebody whom they they want to impress. And you see how that works out in all these different things. That that, uh, in theory, we believe in Christ. But in reality, that belief often makes very little difference. It also may be that uh, it's not just in terms of sin, but let's say in terms of brokenness, that we are, we are shattered, we are worn out, we are uh, oppressed by guilt, and we're not seeing Christ because we don't see Christ in His graciousness, in His love without end. So, we, we, we need to reflect on that a bit. Now, the trouble with seeing Christ is, as it is in Isaiah 53, is that what we see is not immediately, obviously beautiful. Okay? Let's just go through this very briefly and you'll see what I mean. Christ was rejected. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty in us to attract us to him. We would think, if only we saw Jesus Christ, we would not reject him. That's not true. Human beings very often will reject Christ even when they see him. Beauty. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. The word that's used for beauty is the word that's used for Rachel in Genesis 29 verse 17, where it says that she was beautiful, she was lovely in form and beautiful. Um, I don't know if we can see these pictures of Jesus up there, you know, but... um, there's, I mean, these are lovely stained glass windows, but theologically they're mints, right? They, they just forget it, right? If, if you look at them, see a lovely stained glass window, okay? You're not looking at these windows and you're not seeing Jesus, okay? That is not seeing Jesus. In fact, that's one of the problems with all the portrayals of Jesus is somehow they actually detract because they're giving you a picture of him, which actually isn't him. We have no idea what Jesus looked like. And In some sense, you know, if you were going to do a painting of Christ, it's better being abstract art completely. Do Picasso or Salvador Dali or something, because you're then putting across concepts rather than than actual features. 
This is, to me, an extraordinary thing. But if this passage is telling us, and it's the only physical description we have of Jesus in the whole Bible, he's saying that when you saw Jesus, there was nothing beautiful about Jesus to attract you to him. In other words, he wouldn't walk into the church here and you'd go, wow, there was just an aura about Jesus. There was just something about him, just something in his walk, something in his face. No, no, there wasn't. There was no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Majesty here has the idea of the outward impressiveness of an important person. Now, the important thing here is there was nothing naturally attractive and impressive about Christ. His image was not good. He was not well-built, not impressive, not handsome, not easy to believe he was the Lord. He was not Mel Gibson. He just, it's, it's, you know, the guys in the film, we went to see Australia, and, you know, you can spot the heroes in the film because they're the good-looking hunky guys. Well, here we're being told, here's our hero, and there's nothing impressive about him in terms of, of looking upon him. In fact, he's the root out of dry ground, verse uh, 2. Now, what that means is, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, you'll see this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and so on. The root out of the dry ground, what that refers to is, it's not good ground. It's lowly ground. It's poor ground. It's referring to lowly conditions and a bad background. A root in a dry ground struggles to preserve life. And here's the thing. This is not just the outward appearance of Jesus' life, but it's also the whole of his life, that the whole of his life was a struggle. The whole of his life was difficult. From the very beginning, when Herod tried to have him killed, the whole of his life was difficult. In poverty, Nothing that would be particularly attractive in his life. Now, there's a, 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 a reaction to that Christ, and a reaction which, again, was not particularly impressive for lots of people. Um, I think in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 39, this is with Christ on the cross, of course, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourselves. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Christ crucified is a stumbling block. We preach, says Paul, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, you see, we can't get out of that image because the image that they would have at their time is the Greek superhero. And the image that we have is Brad Pitt or Mel Gibson. And, and it's hard for us to understand how our Savior could be so ugly in this sense, and particularly on the cross. Now, I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail of this, but the reason the Romans crucified people was not just cruelty, but also humiliation. It was the most humiliating way to die. And again, please forget all these pictures of Jesus on the cross looking serenely down uh, with a loincloth strategically placed. You were crucified on a cross naked. 
and you were crucified on a cross in great agony. It was to humiliate you. It was absolutely to humiliate you. It was a disgusting, sickening sight. You lost all control of of your body and your bowels and everything else. It was not this this picture that, that people have turned into a religious image. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. Jesus was shunned, was mocked, was dismissed, was despised, was rejected. People turned their faces away from Jesus Christ. They didn't look at Jesus and say, wow, isn't that incredible? Or even look at Jesus, oh, it's a shame, Jesus on the cross. It, it was stomach-churningly nauseating. And it, 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 it just doesn't fit for so many people in their image of religion. Now, the thing there, of course, is that he was a man of sorrows, not because of his own constitution, but because he took our sorrows upon himself. Verses 4, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Now, the whole point about this is that Jesus Christ is the one who came into this world in order to suffer. His life is a life of suffering. And uh, it's in that way that we really have to see him. Now, we, we have to grasp that and understand it. Because as we go on and look at this, we then ask this question, really, what we think about him. Who's believed this message? He was despised, verse 3, and we esteemed him not. To esteem something is to place a value on something. The way that you survived looking at the cross when you saw that happening is... You didn't see another human being there. You saw a scumbag. You saw someone who deserved it. You saw somebody, well, that's just the way it is. You did not see your brother or your sister. You did not see your mother or your father. You did not see. You just saw someone who was, society was better off without. Someone who becomes subhuman. It's like um, at the end of, this year, there have been various stories about women who have abused their children. You know, the famous story of the child that was kidnapped by her own mother and so on. And you get, of course, the Sun newspaper and the Daily Mail and others, you know, scum of the earth, evil and so on. And, and what they did, obviously, was horrendously evil. But in a sense, headlines like that allow people to put them at a distance and say they are like that. They are horrendous. The implication being that I'm not, I'm not remotely like that. It's, uh, that's what happened with Christ on the cross. That people did not esteem him. They did not value him. They put a big fat zero on his life. And I actually think that there are many people today who when you begin to teach and to preach who Jesus really is, they like the kind of fairy tale Jesus. They like the mythological Jesus. They like the religious Jesus. They like the Jesus of the stained glass window. They do not like the Jesus who suffers on the cross because of them. That is just a big no. And there are many who will despise and reject that Christ. 
And for me, that's, that's just so much the worst place to be in. Because if we see no beauty in Christ on the cross, that reveals the bankruptcy of our human emotions. It reveals our pride. It reveals our selfishness. It reveals our blindness. If we despise and reject him, that reveals the misguided human will. If we account him as nothing, that reveals our sinful minds. And to be honest, my emotions, my will, my mind, in and of themselves, will not grasp or understand Christ. And that's where it comes back into the revelation. Human nature is inadequate, therefore we need revelation, we need the Spirit, we need to be born from above, we need the arm of the Lord to be revealed. You see, people talk about born again, and it's like a Billy Graham crusade, put your hand up, go down to the front, give your life to Jesus, that's it. No. What's the purpose of being born again? Jesus says to Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. The purpose of being born again is not... uh, It's not a gesture that we do for God. It's something that God does for us. His Spirit works in our lives so that we can see. And we can see, above all, Jesus Christ. We need the arm of the Lord to be revealed. And that is where the beauty comes in. Because in verse 4, he goes on to say, Surely he took up our uh, infirmities and carried our sorrows. The surely here is an unexpected thing. He's been saying, nobody believes our message. Our message was about Jesus Christ. There's nothing about Jesus Christ that would attract people to Jesus Christ. He was despised. We did not esteem him. We saw nothing in him. And then this surely is a contrast. But, and it's an extraordinary contrast. It's something that you do not expect. And it's simply saying this. He suffered because he was a substitute. Now, the teaching here is drawn from Leviticus chapter 16 and also elsewhere in the Bible, but it's just simply this. This is what Jesus did. First of all, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He dealt with every aspect of our need, the infirmities and the sorrows that blight our lives. You see, what I can do is I can sympathize with your infirmity and your weakness. I can sympathize with your sorrows. I can't carry them. I can't take them. I can help to a certain degree certain people. You can help to a certain degree certain people in a limited way. A limited number of people in a limited way. But you can't help with the moral and spiritual wrongs that alienate God. You can't bring people close to God. As the psalmist says, is there anyone who can atone for someone else? No, there's nobody. But what Christ did... He took up, he bends down to lift up. And you see, that's why it becomes so suddenly extraordinary. Because when the Spirit opens your eyes, what the Spirit helps you to see is your desperate need of Jesus. What the Spirit helps you to see is his, not your filth, rather. Your twistedness, your sickness, not other people's, but yours. Your desperate need. You might want to say, well, I'm just a human being. I'm just an animal, just the way I behave. But you know within yourself that cannot be the case. But to be right, to be good, to be holy, to be true, to be pure, it's not possible. 
It's a burden that's too much to bear. Ecclesiastes puts it beautifully. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the hearts of men. What a burden God has placed on man. That's a burden to be placed. Someone puts it this way in terms of the sickness and the sorrow that mar our lives. We wish for more than we are able to achieve so that the good life is always eluding us. We long for a truly happy life but are constantly bulked by sorrow in whatever form it may come. Disappointment, bereavement, tragedy, whatever. You see, and, and you know, you'd like the... I mean, I didn't see the Queen's Christmas message, but, and I actually didn't see, what's his name, the Iranian presidents either. But, you know, you imagine people's, people's Christmas messages, they're all, I wish you love, I wish you peace, you know, and may there be prosperity on earth and all that kind of stuff. And I guess in some churches, you'll get people who'll say, well, this year you're going to be really, really blessed. You're going to get lots of money. All your illnesses are going to be cured come to Jesus, why have a mini when God can give you a rose and all this kind of stuff? And it's, you know it's not true. Because yes, in this coming year, you will experience many blessings. But under and around all those blessings all the time, you will know that there will be disappointments and there will be bereavements and there will be tragedies and there will be sorrows. And there are burdens that you are carrying right now and it seems impossible to do anything else, except what we're being told here is that He took up our infirmities, our weaknesses, and carried our sorrows. Now, I want to take infirmities here, by the way. Uh, there's, a danger to see, there's a danger because of health and wealth teaching that some people say, well, this just means our sins. I don't think it does. It's specific. It's our infirmities, our sorrows, our iniquities. Yes, it's those things together. And that, that's a strange... I think, you know, if I suffer from a migraine or something, am I saying that Jesus took a, Well, yes, in a way, yes, because he, he, it's not that you never suffer them, but he himself took on a human body. He goes through the sorrows and the temptations that we go through as well. And so we're asked, what do we think of him? Well, actually, no, let me, let me I want to come back to that. Let me also say what happened to him in terms of this substitution. He was pierced for our transgressions, verse 5. Let's just say this, look. This is a deep work. Psalm 109, verse 22, for I am poor and needy and my heart is wounded within me. This is not something superficial. This is not just Jesus getting beaten up for us. This is not just Jesus even just suffering death for us. It's going right to the heart of the matter. It's going right to our heart, and it goes right to the heart of God. And Christ is stricken by God. That stricken, by the way, in biblical times, was often considered to be um, leprosy. If you had a skin, dreadful skin disease of leprosy. And here it's saying Jesus, there was a tradition that the Messiah would have leprosy. And what was happening with leprosy? You were shut out. You were put on your own. And here the teaching is that Jesus was alone in his sufferings. All day long I've been plagued, says the psalmist, Psalm 73, verse 14. I've been punished every morning. He was pierced deeply by our transgressions. That's an extraordinary, or for our transgressions. The deliberate flouting of the Lord and his law. He was crushed. That's a word that was used of people being crushed to death. Why? For our iniquities. He was 
bent double with the weight of taking our sin upon himself. And what does he do? He deals with our sinful state, our alienation from God and our broken personhood. Look, it's fantastic. The punishment that brings us peace is upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The moral and the spiritual wrongs that alienate us from God, the punishment necessary to secure our peace with God, our shalom, the word which means being whole and being complete, being cured, being forgiven, being full, personal fulfillment, harmonious society, a secure relationship with God. That work is now done by the substitute's death. It, in, in, in theological terms, that's called the penal view of the atonement. And it is most extraordinary to me that there are Christians who say, we don't like this. This is not good. It doesn't sound right. We must, you know, put it aside. It's an old, old teaching. Listen, it is the very, very heart of the gospel. It is the Lord saying, you are broken, you are bruised, you are wounded, you are shattered, you are destroyed by your sin and by other people's sin. Now, I am bending down and I am picking it up and I am taking it all. Every single bit of it. There isn't a bit that's left out. There isn't a bit that you have to do. Every single bit I am taking. And that's what penal substitution is. And it does bring healing, healing healing in terms of the infirmities and sorrows that blight our lives. It does close the wounds. Because without that, your life is a series of open wounds. That someone scratches, it just opens it all up again. My wounds fester, Psalm 38 verse 5 says, and are loathsome. But 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, it's this extraordinary and wonderful picture of Jesus Christ. It, you don't get it unless you grasp the seriousness of sin. If our iniquities are just errors that we've made, and so in the light of human standards, we're not all that we could be. But hey, there's another day. New year, New Year's resolution. What was, the, what was it I read yesterday? That within 24 hours, half of all New Year's resolutions are broken. And within three months, they're all completely broken. No. That's it's something much, much more than that. If our iniquities are just mistakes that we make or things that we can correct by a uh, a little bit of moral fiber, then why would that result in the death of Jesus as our substitute? Sin is far, far more serious than we realize. But the work of Christ is far, far deeper than we are prepared often to recognize. And it brings this just tremendous healing, complete freedom from all the things that cause the servant to die. The peace of God that passes understanding. I think in the atonement, we do experience ultimately in, in heaven, complete physical, spiritual, mental healing. But in this life, it's there for us as well. Now, I'm not saying that a Christian will never ever get sick. And I'm not saying that 
a Christian will never, ever get hurt. But I am saying that the healing process is something that goes on now and, and we can experience it. Yes, you can experience it physically. But you can experience it in so many, many, many different ways. And that's why, you know, in the story of the Israelites that they had to look at the serpent, the bronze serpent upon the pole and they would be healed. That's why Jesus then in reflecting that story says, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself, that we are to look at Christ and we are healed. That's why I hope you can see it's so important for us to see and to understand who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. I don't want to look at a kind of superhero on a cross. And I don't want to look at a powerless human being on a cross. I want to look at Christ and what he did. And the cross, which is the most ugly thing in the world, becomes the most beautiful thing in the world. Because for me, it's all the pus being taken out of my life. It's all the rottenness being removed with no possibility of it being returned. What do we think of Jesus Christ? I'll finish with this because I, I hope you grasp what is being said here. That there is no more important question for you. If you're a Christian, don't just give the standard flippant answer. Think about it. Think what you really think of Christ and, and, and ask the Lord, Lord, please reveal yourself more to me so that I might love you more. Please help me understand what you have done. Help me to look to you and all the things I don't understand and I don't grasp, but let me at least see you and what you have done. And if you're not a Christian, um, I, I just urge you to seek Christ while he may be found because incredibly, you can know him. Do you believe this message? Do you believe this report that has come about this wonderful person, Jesus Christ, who has come to save you? I'm, uh, and I'd value prayer for this, I'm trying to finish off uh, a book about Jesus for people who have no idea who he is. And uh, I've called it Magnificent Obsession. And I've called it that for this reason. It's a story I've told you, some of you before, of uh, a group of Amish uh, Mennonites in Montana, some of whom, the younger ones whom, became not just traditional Amish Christians, but they became real born-again Christians. God's Spirit really worked in their life, and there was tension in the community and so on. But the young man whose father had died, whose father had been the minister of that, that group, was being interviewed by the BBC and in this television program. And the woman journalist, she was very, very good. Uh, she said to him, what does, tell me, what does Jesus mean to you? I don't, basically, she was saying, I don't get this. Why all this thing about Jesus? And he looked at her. And, you know, he's a young man, bearded man. And, and he looked at her, his eyes filled with tears. And he said, Jesus, he is everything. He is my magnificent obsession. Now, I watched that program many, many times. And just the reality of what he said. His father had died. He tried different things. None of it worked. His religion didn't work. And there he was, 
being asked by a complete stranger, you know, what's, what's all this about? And he says, Jesus, he is my magnificent obsession. May God grant that that would be true of us all. Let's pray.